You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Happy Friday, everyone. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington, live without a net with our CEO and co-founder, Rao Pal. Rao, welcome. I didn't realize we were live. I would have put makeup on and had big hair. <laughs> Break out the hair dryer, Rao. It's time to go live. <laughs> I'm ready. Let's do it. So, Rao, uh, we were talking a little bit off camera. Uh, what's on your mind? Interesting time in markets. It's interesting and not interesting, right? Basically, the macrosphere, it's absolutely dull as dishwater. Nothing's really going anywhere. Bond market's correcting a bit. The dollar's kind of gone up a bit, but not doing a lot. And the equity market's grinding high. So there's not a lot going on. But beneath the scene, we had something very interesting. And I, I would take it as a unique signal. I've, I've been warning about the excessive leverage in the financial system. And I know that um, Weston um, on the Real Vision Exchange has been talking about this, and he's doing a piece on it. Something very interesting happened, which was Archegos blowing up. It's a story of excess leverage and hubris and the usual financial market stuff that we've all grown up with. <laughs> but if you remember, I'd isolated the issues of the leverage within the system and how it was layered with option market makers, record short gamma, all of these traders, record long options, you know, record low cash, record um, um, high hedge fund exposure, all of that. So we have a massive event that basically wipes out something like 10 to 12 billion right. of money off the investment banks who take it on the chin. And nothing happened. Yeah. The markets didn't go anywhere. Volatility didn't move. As retail investors have started going back to work, the call buying from stimuluses don't seem to be applying. So the leverage is slowly coming out. My guess is some of the hedge funds degrossed in this environment. So we've got into a slightly less risky situation than we were. And that's fascinating. Look, people do are pretty fully invested in markets. I'm not saying that's gone, but we had the VAR shock, and it was a big one. I mean, Robin Hood and all of that, none of that blew up $12 billion worth of money off the prime booking balance sheets, but this did, and nothing happened. So it makes me think that the market is much more robust than people are imagining. And you know, it, it always concerns people to say that, but to me, it looks bulletproof. And it looks bulletproof from another angle. Is, and I've talked about this at length, is once you adjust the S&P or the NASDAQ or any of these assets by and change the denominator to the Fed balance sheet as opposed to the US dollar, so i.e. the S&P divided by the Fed balance sheet, that takes into account the excess printing or the debasement of fiat currency. And what we found that the S&P in 2008 collapsed about 80% in balance sheet terms and then traded sideways for the next 12 years. Mm -hmm. um, and it tells me that the markets aren't wildly expensive. When I look at the S&P versus gold or the S&P versus real estate or real estate versus the S&P, they all are in normal valuations. 
So something else is going on. I think that what it's telling us is any expansion of the Fed balance sheet is a devaluation of fiat currency. It's not the mechanism that most people thought that that Fed printing equals more money leaking out of banks into the markets because volumes don't show that. What it's actually showing is the denominators going down. And so therefore, once you adjust for that, these markets, I think, have a lot further they can run um, because we're only going to see more balance sheet expansion from these fiscal policies. If bond yields go up too much and we have yield curve control, then they're going to buy the bonds, which is more balance sheet expansion. If the stock market falls, they're going to do more QE, more balance sheet expansion. So we've got balance sheet expansion in a normal scenario, balance sheet expansion in a fall in the equity market, balance sheet expansion in a reflationary trade where bond yields go up. That only tells you markets are going up. Yeah. I know people would like to hear that, but they're going up. And they're going up because the value of the denominator is falling. So to explain that a bit clearer, the Venezuelan stock market looks like this in Bolivar. When you adjust it for US dollars, it looks like this because the Bolivar went down in value. So we're seeing something similar to that. I know it's a lot to get people's heads around. I'll probably do a whole big piece on it over the weekend that I'll uh, I'll put out uh, next week. Um, but that's what's going on. So yeah, there's nothing going on in markets, but there's everything going on. Well, you know, it's so interesting because it's it's counterintuitive to people, especially if they're new to the macro space. Uh, you know, effectively, the too long didn't read version is if the economy improves, stocks are going to go up. If the economy goes down or stays stagnant, there's going to be Fed action and uh, policy action coordinated globally, and stocks are going to go up. That's hard for people to get their head around, Ralph. Oh, God, yes. It's very difficult. <laughs> um, and so this is why valuations don't make sense. And again, I've divided much of the valuation stuff by the Fed balance sheet, and everything makes sense. Everything looks normal when you do it. There's a. It's going to take a while to get people's heads around what I'm talking about. Um, I have written about it in uh, Macro Insiders. I will put something out on Real Vision just to show people what I'm talking about when you talk about the change in the, the denominator. But the too long didn't read is it's almost impossible for stocks to go down except a small, uh, you know, a, a sharp spike. And if nobody learned any lessons from what just happened, then nobody's paying attention. We had the biggest economic recession the world has ever seen at one point. And the markets fell like a stone for a month and rallied then on. Wow. And everyone's like, why? This makes no sense to me. Of course, it makes no sense. It's because we're looking at everything wrong. So I think it's a really, really important. This is why Bitcoin goes up. Um, it's because it's the inverse of the Fed balance sheet and more. Uh, it's a really, really important thing for people to understand. Yeah. And of course, Ethereum, too, up over 2,000 as we have this conversation here today. Yeah. I mean, it's up over 175% this year. You know, there's network effects and a lot going on. And again, I'll do, I'm going to do a whole piece on this, a long, deep dive in my thinking, because I've got a lot of extended thinking I want to get across to people to try and bring people up on the knowledge journey of where I've got to in my overall thought process, because it's changing a lot. Um, you know, I'm even changing for global macro investor. I've not kind of wheeled it out yet. Um, changing the potential hypothesis for my entire investment framework. Uh, just as an aside, a lot of people, you know, hit me up and say, you know, what happened to the insolvency phase? And that's a great question. The insolvency phase, if you remember, was the final phase of a recession 
where we're left with a bunch of companies and or people who basically can't pay their bills because there's a lot of debt out there and economic growth have vaporized. Well, what we saw was the largest ever central bank and government combined response in all recorded history. Right. And what we've created is a bunch of zombies. So the stimulus payments are zombie payments to keep people alive until their jobs kick in. We don't know what the structural unemployment is going to be from all of the people in retail jobs, et cetera. We are doing the same with corporations too. If, interestingly, I used to talk about those triple B entities and the chance of them going tits up in this recession because of cash flow. Well, divide the, the price of GE by the Fed balance sheet. It's basically a zero. It's a zombie. Mm. It's only the denominator that makes it look not like a zombie. The same with most of these, AT&T, any of these, they just look like they're zeros. There's a very different world. You see it. And that's the insolvency. It's there, but it's hidden by the excess printing of money. So I think this economic recovery probably takes longer than most people imagine because there is a lot of insolvency and impairment of balance sheet. But other parts are just going to keep exploding higher. So it's, a, it's going to be a really complicated world, but I think it's a world where equities go higher. Yeah. It's a lot to get uh, people's heads around, especially if they're new to the space. And interestingly enough, those two stories intersect, the things that we were talking about at the beginning. So you've got this money illusion with price in U.S. equities. And simultaneously, you have this breakdown at Archegos, Archegos, the family office that nobody knows how to pronounce, uh, and nothing happens. Silence, deafening all because of the intervention that we see. Yeah, I mean, again, step back, you're dead right. So we have one of the largest blow-ups of recent times in terms of this Archegos, and nothing happened. Yeah. We have the largest recession of all recorded history, as far as we can tell, and nothing happened. Yeah. So either we're not looking at it right, or something has changed. and. You know, we should all be asking ourselves these questions. The intellectual honest answer is not, well, you know, the Fed have just stopped a recession, just making it worse. Maybe everything is wrong that we assume. And I don't know what that even means. So I'm not, well, I do have a lot of answers, but I'm not prepared to present them yet until I more robustly test them. Um, but I think we're looking at it wrong. And that's, that's, all I can, that's all I can really explain at the moment. Well, you know, another really fascinating point, and you and I were just talking about this off camera before we started the show. Uh, this sounds in many ways, when we hear about the Archegos story, it sounds like an Asian story. Obviously, Mr. Huang was born in Korea. Uh, he was involved in Asian funds. There were a lot of Asian stocks involved in this. Uh, but Mr. Huang lives directly across the river, right, right there in New Jersey. This is not a story that takes place somewhere else. This is a story right here based on Wall Street. It's also a story of family offices and the shift of power on Wall Street. So I know internally the big salespeople, the guys who get paid the big bucks at Goldman um, or you know the big investment of JP Morgan, that shifts around depending where the action is, where the real money is. You know, I was lucky to be in part of that sphere when it was the hedge fund salespeople. We were the big swinging dicks. We were the guys who got paid the most. We, you know, we had all the glory. We could spend the wine on our customers. That's all changed. That changed about seven years ago, and it went to family offices. 
So the people who are getting paid the big bucks as salesmen now are people selling to family offices. Because family offices are lucrative. They use a wide range of services, and they tend to be less price sensitive than hedge funds who have huge staff to beat down every single price. So they, they're very attractive, high-margin customers because there's everything from you know, nice, juicy lending businesses through to securities businesses. They tend to buy a lot of more expensive derivative products, all sorts of stuff. But in order to capture them, when that race is on, investment banks always do the same thing, which is start offering ridiculous incentives. Mm. I first started hearing about non-recourse loans about seven years ago, that non-recourse loans were being offered to family offices, basically just giving them free money on the understanding that they spent that free money within the investment bank. I mean, friends of mine bought houses on non-recourse loans from Swiss investment banks. I'm like, really? So what that means to the average person is you don't have to pay them back. It's like the money your dad lends you. You kind of never have to pay it back. <laughs> and the idea was for them to spray that money around and it would multiply across the investment bank. Um, and I think the Archegos story is going to be about that. Hidden beneath it is the perverse invent incentives of investment bank salespeople and leverage. And the more leverage you can offer, and this was the same story of long-term capital. Yeah, We as salespeople, and I was one of those people, would put on obscene leverage at ridiculous rates because they did so much business. And our job was kind of to turn a blind eye because we got paid on how much business we did. But in the end, we all did too much business. And the story for me with that is I was on a 1998 Summer 98, I'm on a fishing boat at a mate stag in Kilkenny in Southern Ireland. And I'm on a boat with a whole group of friends of mine. We all happen to work in financial markets. And I spoke to a mate of mine who was at Salomon. I'm like, who's your biggest customer? And he's like, long-term capital. He was in equity derivatives. I said, how much have you got? He's like, probably about a couple of billion dollars worth in equity derivatives. I said, what about you? And there's another mate of mine, and he was, I think it was a JP Morgan. And, like, and he was in equity derivatives. I said, what have you got? Biggest customer, long-term capital, buy a country mile. Mm. How much have you got? I don't know, two or three billion? I'm like, okay, so that's now already larger than their entire fund. Because at the time, they were like $3 billion. I can't remember. So then I'm like, huh. Then a friend of mine was head of bun trading at, at Deutsche Bank. I'm like, Justin, how much have you got? He's like, <laughs> 20 billion, <laughs> whatever the number was, right? Like 10 times because fixed income markets are less volatile, so you can have more leverage. Right. And then I'm like, okay. And I was at NatWest and I'm like, we've probably got 4 billion just in equity derivatives, proving obviously that I was a better salesman than my friends because I'd done more business. Um, and then realizing with horror that this was a house of cards, I went back to the office on the Monday and went to see our head of risk and said, We've got a huge problem here. Um, I think we managed to get out of it without any losses, actually. I can't remember how we unwound it or how we reduced some of the risk, but we didn't really, we didn't really get hit, but a lot of people did. Um, obviously, by 1999, everybody blew up in that. But I've got a, just did a great masterclass interview um, about this with, uh, uh, with um Mike Varanos, who runs Ellington, is one of the $10 billion legend of the hedge fund industry, structured finance. He blew up in, in 98 because of long-term capital and when leverage gets pulled. But leverage didn't get pulled last week. 
Right. But it's all those same forces, Ralph. Listen to the evidence. It's, it's exactly the same, right? Right. That's finance people, we have shorter attention spans and, and you know, fat wallets. So, you know, everyone wants to get paid. And it's the same way. Banks only get paid from leverage and number of transactions. That's it. There's no other way of getting paid. So we're always incentivized to do the same thing. Leverage, principal agency conflict, multiple banks exposed to the same large exogenous shock from the buy side. And we all do this. I can't hear you. Sorry. You haven't got any positions, have you? No, we haven't either. Um, because... No salesman wants to miss out, and no risk manager doesn't want to allow the business to happen. Nobody wants to get fired by the big boss. Why aren't you doing business with that family office? They're all getting rich. I mean, we've all been there. Absolutely. And it's amazing to me also how rarely this comes up in the academic literature around this, this principal agency conflict between the sales guys and the house. I remember many years ago working at a bank, I won't name it, uh, and mentioning a product to uh, to someone. And, and the guy looked at me like I'd just gotten uh, off the turnip truck. And he said, the YTB is too low. And I said, well, what the hell's the YTB? And he said, yield to broker. And he walked away. Right? I mean, this extent to which this is driven by individuals making decisions uh, that are in their own economic self-interest, always, always a factor. But that's all businesses. All businesses are the same, right? It's either high margin, high volume. There's very few businesses in the world that are high volume, high margin. Those become massive. When I was at first at Goldman, we used to charge a premium because we were Goldman Sachs and we were snobbish and we were a partnership, and we'd do high volume. That was great. Then Deutsche Bank came in, kind of completely changed the economics, and Lehman, and so we all went to lower margin, higher volumes. Yeah, And the, always the search was the high margin product, and it ended up in 2008 being, um, yeah. being silos and all of that stuff, right? And by the way, none of those uh, deals we've gotten done if Goldman were still a partnership. No, of course not. <laughs> yeah. so, so CDS, all of this stuff, um, because they were high margin. But over time, they become low margin because everybody goes into them. That's an interesting story. So John Goodfriend, mm. there was an interview Legend. with him. There was an interview with him, I think, in about 2010. So he retired years ago, right? He's one of the most legendary chairman of Salomon, one of the most legendary traders in the history of Wall Street. And there was an interview with John Goodfriend. I don't know how old he was at the interview, but 80 or something. And somebody took him out, and he said, I haven't given an interview for a long time, but I just want to say I'm sorry. I think <laughs> some of this, maybe all of this, is my fault. Oh, and I was like, John, how can that be? You've not been active. You're not, you've not been involved. He said, it all started when I made the decision to turn to make Salomon a public company. He said, when we moved away from being a partnership, everybody followed. And when everybody followed, we stopped taking partners' risk, and we had unlimited risk. And that was what led to this amount of leverage. It could never have happened before. And I think that's true, you know, the golden partnership model, all of that. Um, so fascinating, but it's all the same. Every business is the same, either high margin, low volume, high volume, low margin. And as a salesperson, the easiest way is sell the highest margin project you can in the largest size until it blows up. <laughs> and, it all, and it all did start at Salomon Brothers, of course. And your downside is you lose your job. Your upside is a call option. It's phenomenal. Right. It's it's a twisted it's a twisted incentive structure, and we joke about it. But, but every set every yeah. sales job is the same. Just because we're dealing with money, 
everything gets everything gets a little spicier when you're just dealing with money. It's like the reason why the the network effects of Bitcoin and crypto is so large is because it's money. Humans get funny around money. It's like the ring. You know, it's like my precious in Lord of the Rings. People get all kind of, it's money. They become obsessed. Yeah. And then you add leverage to the system, right? And yeah, then you it's just a way of making more of that precious money. I mean, it's hilarious. But we're humans. It's what we do. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Uh, you know, Ralph, I don't know if you had a chance to see, but earlier today I did a live with Harry Krishnan. Uh, talking about some of these issues uh, about price instability, about the the regime shifts that we see uh, when normal markets turn into uh, routes. Uh, talking about the book that uh, Harry and I are writing together called Market Tremors, which is all about this topic. Yeah, I mean, it's super interesting. I can't wait to see what that book's about and how the story plays out. Yeah, it's good to partner with someone who's much smarter than you are. That's that's my. That's, that's my secret. That's, that's always the rule of thumb. <laughs> Somebody's yeah. uglier than you, but but smarter generally works. <laughs> the uh, yeah, other things that are interesting uh, that should be on people's radar screens: Coinbase. Everyone knows about it. Everyone's heard the story. Blah blah blah. Um, Coinbase has fifty-six million accounts. If I checked right, Robinhood is about thirteen million accounts. Yep. Four times the size. It's the size of Fidelity and Robinhood added together. If people don't understand the magnitude of this crypto thing that's going on, look no further. And people say, yeah, but it's a bubble. That's why. And I'll say, no, it's network effects. That's why. The more people come into it, the more important it becomes. But it's extraordinary to see that. It's extraordinary to see. I just double checked, you know, one of my great mistakes was recommending to Macro Insiders customer clients to buy Galaxy at, I can't remember what it was, about $3 or something. And it went up like 100% in a month. So I sold it, patted myself on the back. Galaxy, last time I checked, is up 2,900% in a year. <laughs> yeah. 2,900%. That's an equity listed in Canada that is a crypto play, and their earnings are exploding with it. So that, that's been a very interesting thing I've been watching. I just saw the numbers. Q4 comprehensive net income at Galaxy, excluding non-controlling uh, interest, up 1,175% Q4 per Tanzil Oktar Coindesk. Yeah. This is big stuff going on. People still are not going to get it. Talking of not getting it, the other story amused me greatly. And again, I'll, I'll reveal it more in due course, my change of framework. But I'm very interested in Kathy Wood's ARK Invest. Yeah. I'm very interested for two reasons. One is everybody hates it. Every old man railing at the internet is Kathy Wood. She, she her funds, they double dip, they're they're, 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 they've got the same investments. She's got illiquid things, and it's criminal. And 
those, it's all going to blow up and it's all going to go wrong. She owns Tesla. She's an idiot. Her price target's wrong. She doesn't understand what she's doing. This is a narrative that is pervasive. I, I'm interested when I hear a narrative like that because I've talked to Kathy and she's very smart, very rational. And then, so I started looking at what she's doing. And her investment themes, I believe, are absolutely spot on. I think she is so far ahead of understanding the exponential world that we are in and moving in towards that most people don't understand. People don't like to see a fund manager outperform everybody else by that order of magnitude. <laughs> it must be a bubble set in mixes of small caps and big caps. You know, it's criminal. It's fraud. There's something. No, she I would say, I'm guessing that, and it could fall a bit further from here, no real issue with where it goes in the short term. But my view is, I think this thing is going to go up another 20x from here, maybe even 50x, if, if my hypothesis is right, that basically almost every one of her themes is spot on. Um, because none of these are valuation-based businesses that use traditional valuations. All of them are based on Metcalfe's law. And my understanding of Bitcoin has got me a big understanding of some of the huge changes that are actually taking place in the world. And I'm not going to go through it in, in, in huge detail, but to ARK Invest, keep it on people's radar screens. You might hate it. Question why you hate it. Do you hate its success? Are you going to blame how it's constructed? Have you actually gone and asked other fund managers why they have a price target on their AT&T stock and their assumptions? No, you're doing it because of jealousy of Kathy Wood's performance and that she has outrageous price targets and they've been right. Question why you hate it is great advice for anything new that you don't understand. It, it is dead true, you know, because we all, you know, I, I've been questioning why I never, ever got Amazon right. <laughs> you know? Can't you see it's got a P of 800, which is what it traded most of the 2000s in? Yeah. Well, can't you see it, it sells, it's worth more than every book sold on earth every year. It's worth more than all the booksellers added together. Guess what? It was never a book company. Right. It was a network adoption business, and none of us saw it. Yeah. Some people, few people did. And in fact, the only person who actually made money of owning Amazon all this time was Jeff Bezos because he only he could see really what he was doing, which is that's why these network effects opportunities yeah. are so hard. Facebook's been the same. You know, Facebook has another chance of creating another whole network effect, which is it's got VR, and anybody who's seen the Pierce Kicks video and understands the meta metaverse understands that VR is not a, a small thing. This is a huge future. It is also launching DM, which is basically a crypto payment rails, a stablecoin payment rails across the largest network on earth. Those two things give it a gigantic quantum leap into where the future of the world is going, which is the digital universe. Um, so is there a chance that Facebook is undervalued? I hate Facebook as a company <laughs> for its privacy reasons. And I thought that they would run out of network effect because of Facebook itself um, and 
WhatsApp seeming to have peaking out and, uh, and Instagram the same. But if they get this next bet right, this thing's off to the races again. Yeah, it's new- all network effects all over again. Because if you can bring all digital global shopping transactions and wallets on the Facebook network, you've just exponentially increased the network value. People don't understand this shit. And I'm only trying to get my head around it. Yeah. The new Oculus uh, VR headset, pretty impressive piece of hardware as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, anybody who's picked up an Oculus, put it on, turn it on, you, you're in a room and it's gorgeous. And it's the moment you put that thing on, forget the games. And you sit, look around this room and you're like, wow, I'd like to live here. <laughs> you realize everything's changed. Well, I want to live in your house. You don't. I've got builders in and my mum is there. <laughs> she's been over. She's been over. Uh, she went through quarantine and she's been saying, so we've got, we've got the mum, we've got mum, we've got people redoing the garden and a bunch of builders. You don't want to be in my house. No, I hope she's down on the beach at least, a few steps away. Yeah, she's not too far. She's been on the beach. By the way, we should say, just so we don't sound like we're completely uh, engaged in euphoric thinking here, talking about Amazon, which is a great metaphor, to understand the broad scope of the way we think about it. Why are you apologizing? Interesting. Stop. Why are you apologizing for euphoric thinking? Why? The question is, and I know this, Mm -hmm. you're a mean reversionist, as is most of us. I'm not a mean reversionist. No, hold on. This time can't be different. Because it gives everybody the fear to say it's going up. Because everybody doesn't want to be told, well, see, it was expensive, you idiot. You bought it's a really interesting thing. And I wasn't calling you out, but I see this all the time. Yeah. And I do it, is a terrible fear of having an opinion about upside. It's very comfortable for everybody to say, well. Stock market's overvalued any day now. This can collapse. That's accepted universally as he's being smart and acknowledging the downside. But if you say, like Kathy Wood, I think Tesla's going to 3,000, they say you're an idiot. Fascinating. Just what observe that and the clarification statements that people make around euphoria, euphoria. Really interesting. Well, it's such a fascinating point, Rao, and I think you're spot on with this because I think that if you look at the general trend, if you look at technology, we understand and we've now seen over the last 20 years the enormous gains in productivity, efficiency, uh, and the changes, the massive changes to the world that technology has created. But the interesting thing is if you look at if you look at Amazon, which is, I think, in many ways, uh, a great metaphor for the way we think about the, the technology uh, that we are looking at today, whether it's on the digital asset side uh, or on the equity side, which is that Amazon had a max drawdown. I think about 93% was the highest max so, drawdown. So this is another thing that I've I'm trying to rethink the world. You know, when the yeah. facts change, I change. And I've been very slow to change because I hadn't realized it. There is a narrative. The narrative is, well, 2000 was a stock market bubble and we all learned the hard way. No, it wasn't. It was a minor blip on an exponential chart of the right. internet. Anybody who did nothing over that period of time but held on 
has made a fortune. And yes, somebody's going to go, yeah, but Oracle or whatever stock, XYZ stock, never made it back to the high. The market did. Yeah. So if you'd held the NASDAQ, it was a blip. And I've learned that now with Bitcoin as well, is that exponential trends, these little S-curve bumps are bumps. So that 90% fall in Amazon was irrelevant. So now what's interesting is I know exactly what's going on through the heads of 75% of the people watching this as we speak. <laughs> They're going to be going, yeah, the top's in, right? <laughs> you know the top's in. Look at Raoul, he's getting all bulled up. The top's in. It's going to collapse any day now. The market's going to go down you know, 2% over the next week, and they go, see, that idiot, he called the top. That is mean reversionist thinking. It's fascinating. But over time, it's proven that all of these trends are exponential, and they're not linear. There's many linear things. Any value stock you want to choose, that's a linear trend. Nothing wrong with value, but you won't make as much money as an exponential trend. Right. So how do you reconcile those two positions, Ralph? How do you think about it? How do you think about time horizons? How do you think about risk tolerance? And how do you think about this in a way that allows you to protect against the downside, but participate in what is clearly uh, a massive I, shift? I don't know yet because I've not been investing in it. I've, you know, crypto is the better bet right now. But there'll, there'll be a time when that will change. And I've realized, I wrote this on Twitter some time ago. If I had my time again, I'd just invest in network effect um, opportunities. It's far yes. better. It's far better because you basically get a higher concentration of returns over a shorter period of time in, in that strategy than you do in, let's say, the concentrated returns that you get out of macro, out of macro shocks. It's just a better use of capital over time. Now, can you overlay the two together and capture macro shocks and exponential effects? I think you can. And I think that's what Stan Druckenmiller is doing as well. If I think back about his technology investment and how the world's changed, he basically runs a core long tech and then macro hedge that he overlevers in down cycles. And that's what's protecting him. I kind of like that as a strategy. Um, I just don't know what the macro shock is anymore because the problem is, is I don't think they're going to let the dollar go anywhere, and I don't think rates are going anywhere. So what's the macro? Macro is equity. There's nothing left to trade. Mm. If, if, if the dollar and rates are kind of range-bound, because so say the central banks, then equity is the game. And equity can't go down because of the mechanism we talked about at the beginning. Right. So if equity goes down, central bank prints. Fascinating skewed risk reward. Um, and I know people go, well, you figure this out now. Why don't you tell us in March last year when you closed out your shorts on the low, you should have gone record long. Yeah, I'm an idiot. I'll take that on the chin all day. But it's, I'm actually not talking about you know, the next 10% or 15%. I'm talking about opportunities and not just with stock markets in general. I'm not that interested in the stock market. I'm interested in a lot of sectors that will, that will exhibit this kind of trend. And the best of all, obviously, is crypto. Yeah. By the way, uh, talking about the tech bubble, uh, the alleged tech bubble, which now we see as the technology has matured, uh, the processes have come into place. Oracle took out its 2000 high in 2017. Looks like it's up about 80% from there, from 2000. So 17 years, but far above uh, its high. Yeah, but the compound average return is not great. Not but a great. Yeah. The market overall, 
has done absolutely fine. And some of these have done, have been some of the best performing stocks in all recorded history. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I looked at Microsoft. Microsoft's a fascinating company because it, it's had two, it's had an S curve and had, had two network effect adoption cycles. One was obviously software, PC software. Yep. And then it peaked out as a company. And, you know, the Steve Ballmer years kind of, it was like going nowhere. And then change of CEO, cloud, gaming. Yeah. And you've got two new exponential adoption curves because both of those became, went from small things to very, very big things. Um, and Microsoft captured both of them and a few more in between. Microsoft is a fascinating story because they missed the internet and they missed cloud. And then they managed to get back in both of those games and uh, and absolutely crushed it. Well, they didn't really get the internet. So they missed that whole bit. As I said, that 2000 to about 2000 and whatever, um, the, whenever they changed CEO, let's say 2014, 15, I can't remember the exact time. Yeah. Dead money because they had no strategy. They missed it. And then they figured out cloud and they went massively into that. And they figured out gaming, which was, you know, not as big. And then they had their, their obviously their core software business. And it's like, oh my God, you get a company that big and you get to reinvent yourself again. Astonishing, astonishing story. Yeah. Yeah. One of the great, one of the great comeback stories in American uh, industry and certainly in tech history. Yeah, without question. Amazing. Like the Apple comeback was as well. Indeed. Um, just to shift gears here a little bit to talk about uh, uh, Janet Yellen's remarks uh, to the IMF. I know this is also something that you've been looking about on the macro side. So remember I put out that video called the Bitcoin Life Raft because the IMF have started putting statements out about a new Bretton Woods. And I had conjecture that within the new Bretton Woods, it was something to do with maybe stabilizing exchange rates, maybe agreeing on a, a um, combined fiscal stimulus. And Janet Yellen came out this week talking about Bretton Woods and talking about the IMF meeting she's going to, which was an interesting turn of phrase. And she was talking about a global minimum corporate tax rate because everybody needs to raise taxes, which is another very important thing. So another important megatrend that's coming. So she talks about the new Bretton Woods. Clearly part of it is going to be the US pushing for a tax rate. My guess is other countries are gonna pushing for dollar stability and maybe this idea of a, of a currency block. Um, I think that's on the table. Um, and I think that a, a a um, combined, cohesive fiscal stimulus that's coordinated is also on offer. Let's wait and see, but it feels like these are fourth turning moments when truly big things are up for grabs. Whether it happens this time around doesn't matter. What it means is it's being talked about. And these are really big things, like the central bank digital currencies. These are gigantic changes to the system, fourth turning system. Yeah. How do you even begin to think about the framework around such a monumental shift uh, in the baseline for how uh, the global economy functions? That's a, that's a hard thing to even conceptualize. Yeah. 
There's a great example of this is in, I think it's New Market Wizards, the interview with Stan Druckermiller, and trying to figure out what happens to the German currency, the German stock market, and German rates on reunification of Germany. It's really difficult to figure out. And the market took the wrong bet, and Stan figured it out and got it right and made a fortune from it. It's really hard. We will see, because the market will tell us. Um, but what it's also going to offer is opportunities and complexities. Um, so fascinating time, you know. As a macro thinker, you don't get anything better than this. You don't get massive structural changes where we're not just talking about, oh, there's too much leverage in the world. We, we kind of all know that shit now. Um, we all know about the demographic crisis, but we've got huge changes of which we don't even understand the magnitude. And that's really, really interesting to me. Because yeah. when you change the, when you're not just changing the sec, secular cycle, but you're changing uh, the, the cyclical aspect, but you're changing the secular story, that's when macro gets really interesting because you could be early. And being early in secular stuff is where you make the big, big bucks. Yeah. I know we've got a lot of uh, activity coming in uh, from our subscribers, from the audience, uh, people who want to get some questions answered. I'm going to start out with this one. Uh, How many of them are saying it must be the top? <laughs> uh, I, see, I see one on that, uh, on that topic. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Ralph, you capitulate on equities. Could this mean the top is in? Seriously, thank you as always. <laughs> <laughs> Um, here's another one coming to us from Viv. Uh, how much reading slash analysis does Raul do to be so in sync with everything around the world? I'm blown away with his knowledge and especially with his ability to explain things. You know, I don't know. It's weird. I don't, I'm not the guy who's reading every article. You know, you, if you'll send me an article, I'll skim read it. But I'm a guy who keeps narratives in his head visually. And I see them. I can't explain it. It's all like a 3D jigsaw puzzle that I see. And I absorb bits of information, whether it's price action on Bloomberg, or it's observable behavior, people hating Kathy Wood, or it's my own hypothesis that I'm clinging onto that feels now like it's been disproven, or it's something else, or it's a snippet of conversation. So I'm not one who reads people's analysis. I, I, I have no interest in it. You know, I'm actually paid to do my own analysis for people. So I need to think more than anything else. And the, it's only really when I get time to think do I get time to really get more, um, to get better at quality ideas. So thinking is more important than reading. Yeah. But you need to have a broad exposure that you can start teasing together. Why was that headline there? What did that mean? How did that happen? What could that all be? Maybe it's nothing. I'll just park it over here, come back to it three years later. That's what I do. Yeah. I find the longer I do this, the more I try to restrict the amount of time I spend reading the news. Yes. I skim read the FT because it is useful. And I'm starting to even skim Twitter less because I'm finding less value. There's too much noise and not enough signal. 
Yeah. Here's a great question from Sergio, which ties into everything we've been talking about here, uh, which is how do you spot nascent network effects? So when these are just rolling up, how do you spot it at the beginning of the S-curve? You can't. It's, at that point, it's a guess. It's true, right? Every token right now that's operating a new amazing protocol that could be the future, you do not know. So that is the hard part. And some people are good at that, and I'm not. Hmm. Um, I can guess that the whole space is going like that. I have no idea which ones, but some people be great at that. You know, many friends of mine are making 100x in all of these smaller tokens because they really understand the technology and the early adoption phase. You know, Andreessen Horowitz are phenomenally good at that. I'm just not. So the answer is I don't know. If you know, let me find out. But really, I think that requires detailed analysis of individual opportunities and a conviction and an understanding that you can be wrong. So it's a sizing and time horizon issue. You know, you need to size those bets small while you can size Amazon pretty big if you think Amazon's network effect continues. Yeah. Here's a, a kind of a narrow question. I can take this one or you can, Ralph. It's up to you. Uh, Jared, is Bitcoin in cold storage the new cash on the sidelines? It's <laughs> a great question. No, because it never gets spent. Hmm. There is... I've been thinking this through about Bitcoin, and one of the problems of the potential outcomes of Bitcoin being money is it's too deflationary. And everyone's like, oh, we want deflationary currency. It makes our savings go up. Problem is, it makes the value of everything else go down as a denominator. Right. So you are incentivized never to spend your money because everything is cheaper tomorrow. If it's very deflationary, then you've got a huge problem because why spend on anything? Why invest any corporate capital? Why do anything at all? So um, it's, it's interesting. Um, so I don't think it is cash on the sidelines, but it, it's a problem because there's going to be more and more of that cash because right now you get an 8% yield if you put it in Tether or 3 or 2% in Bitcoin. And um, why bother putting it into anything else? As I said, Bitcoin's eating the world right now. It's, it's the supermassive black hole that outperforms everything. So there's no point putting it anywhere else. Yeah, this is such a key point about deflation. Um, this is one of the interesting things that has yet to shake out, which is this store of value function versus the medium of exchange function. Really very much an open question. Specifically, and I'll, I'll give a little bit more narrow answer uh, to Jared's question, which is, is, uh, is, the, uh, is the cash and cold wallets uh, the new cash on the sidelines? We don't know. I think what's interesting about Bitcoin is that we haven't had enough time, obviously, to observe all of these correlations yet. Uh, but these on-chain metrics give us the ability to see things, not just with Bitcoin, but across the digital asset universe at a far more detailed and granular level than we've ever had before. So when we start to look at this, it's going to be really interesting to see how those correlations do play into other metrics. And then imagine what it's like when we've got central bank digital currencies. Imagine the granularity of economic understanding in real time that we will have. Yeah. It's extraordinary. Talk about game changing. It's totally mind blowing the kind of information we will have with digital currencies. And the ability to respond in real time. Yeah, it's, it's astonishing. People don't understand any of this yet. Yeah. Um, here's a question that's a macro question uh, that comes to us from Hugh. 
any thoughts as far as this short-term blip uh, in inflation? Uh, will it be a blip or will it be something that's more problematic in the longer term? Uh, Julian and I had a long, Julian Brigden and myself, who both write Macro Insiders, had a big debate about this on the Insider Talks this week. Um, I'm a deflationist, he's an inflationist. Um, we don't know. My view is, my view is, this is a blip, and supply comes back on market as the economies open up, so the supply restrictions ease off, technology, uh, globalization, and the ongoing pressures continue to crush inflation over time, and the economy won't be as strong as expected. Flip side of that is more stimulus is coming, um, you know, maybe, maybe fiscal stimulus spending on infrastructure is more inflationary, maybe wages get spread higher, and maybe it gets out of control. That is the other argument. I have no idea, but why do we care right now? Why we, why we used to care is because it drove bonds. That was the old world. Bond yields go up above 2%, the Fed's buying them, so they're not going there. And if, if interest rates get down to 0%, the Fed's doing anything else it can do to avoid it. So you've got 2% range in bonds. So why do we care about the inflation narrative? We should be thinking about the demand narrative. If commodities is your play, is there real demand or is this pricing pressure? Um, you know, is it going to wipe out the future expected return of tech stocks if inflation goes up? My guess is not, because we've noticed the um, how tech stocks have actually outperformed the Fed balance sheet. They've actually ended up being a place that outperforms inflation too. So it's not the discounted model; it's the it's the it's the quality. It's the quality of the earnings that matter to people right now. So don't know, not sure it matters as much. Um, yes, it matters to savings um, and what you do with it. But I think most people have adjusted for that already. I don't think many people are sitting with all their savings in cash. I think many people have got exposure in gold, Bitcoin, uh, commodities, real estate. Yeah. As we get sort of close to the end here, I know we're about to get yelled at for running over time, Ralph, as we always do. Uh, I should say, if you have a moment uh, and you'd like to hit the uh, subscribe button on YouTube, uh, if you're watching on the platform, uh, we appreciate that so we can get more of this information out to you. We enjoy doing this, and it's fun to do it live, uh, as always. It's super fun, uh, obviously, to get questions from the audience and to have this interactive dialogue uh, across the world. Give us one more question, just because we can, and it'll annoy Nick. <laughs> uh, let's see. Oh, this is a really interesting one. Uh, comes to us from Mike. Uh, what are your thoughts on residential and commercial real estate in this macro environment? A really interesting question with the shifts we've seen with COVID. So real estate, if you divide the Schiller, um, Case-Shiller index by the Fed balance sheet, has basically been trading sideways. So real estate's been doing its job. It's kind of offsetting the devaluation of money. So at a basic core level, it's fine. It's not doing anything amazing. Um, there are structural shifts with commercial real estate. I have no idea how this is going to play out. I can't imagine us going back into our offices in Manhattan in the same way that we were. Um, do, do we still have an office in Manhattan, Ralph? Yeah, we're still paying a fortune for it. I bet. Because we can't get out of the bloody lease till October. But you're but, the only person who goes in it, right? Max. Max. Yeah, he's the only person. The one, the office over, you know, sprawling over two floors. He's probably living in that apartment, the old studio, the old Keith Richards apartment. He's probably living there. We don't even know, right? He probably, maybe. He does uh, his like his Zoom calls, like our internal Zoom calls from like the boardroom. He's probably just moved in there. It's and he's got free rent on this huge apartment in you know in Midtown. 
He's he's a smart kid. He's going somewhere. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, so I don't really know with the real estate question. I think, you know, I'm looking here at the Cayman Islands and everything is being sold off Zoom to Canadians, Brits and Americans, particularly mm -hmm. Canadians. Sight unseen on Zoom, $5 million apartments are trading in an hour. Mm -hmm. Why? Because taxes. So there's a story here. Yeah. Miami, same story, different tax regime, but similar. It's trading. What's happening is clearly a lot of millennials have moved out of the city in New York and other cities, and they've got more space. But my guess is you'll end up lowering the rent enough to attract other people back into the city. So it, comes, it changes over time. Real estate is not a market I fully understand investing in. I don't see any particular problems for the asset class per se, but ever it's all about stock picking, you know, which market you buy, which market you sell. By the way, top tax rate, New York state combined federal, state and local going up to 52%. And the top tax rate in the Cayman Islands last time I checked was zero. <laughs> well, but we do pay like 30% import duty. Yeah, as I've said before, the supermarket's like shopping at fucking Harrods here. It's so expensive. You know, it's a lettuce, some eggs, uh, you know, a can of Coke and, you know, a pack of La Croix water, and it's like 800 bucks. It's ridiculous. <laughs> and, of course, Americans pay taxes uh, abroad wherever they are, so less of an incentive than uh, for Brits and Canadians. Yeah, that's right, and that's why here is staffed by South Africans and ex-British ex uh, Commonwealth countries, because they have the same legal and taxation Commonwealth law rules. So that's why that applies. But that's why, you know, different markets have different drivers to them. Um, and so, you know, they're all nuanced. So you need to understand your own market. So there's no broad brush. Yeah. Ralph, final thoughts uh, in the in the weeks to come, what are you going to be watching to give uh, some of the folks who are listening to this conversation uh, a dashboard of things to think about and look at? Bitcoin, <laughs> full, full stop. That's the, I, you know, I, I keep bleating on about it. It's all I care about. The crypto market, that is the best bet in the world still. It is where it is outperforming everything by a massive margin. There is nothing close. There is almost no point putting my attention span into any other thing. Now, I don't do that because I'm a macro guy and I want to keep aware because things will change and shift. And I say this flippantly, but this is the opportunity and it remains the opportunity. Um, but other things to look at, you know, you might want to keep ARC on your radar screen. I don't think it's a story for right now, so I'm not that fussed about it. You know, I'm always interested in India because that is also going through the digital revolution. But it's not the time for it now. I don't see the time. It's not the time for it now is the answer to everything except crypto. Yeah. You know, I made a major life decision a few months ago uh, that I am focusing on right now. I am coding again, and I'm thinking very seriously about doing an Ethereum development certification because I'm fascinated by it, and I want to actually understand this at the mechanical nuts and bolts level. And the deeper I get in, the more it sucks me down. Fascinating stuff. Yeah, I just want to understand it on my PL. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think we can improve upon that as an exit. <laughs> and again, I'm being flippant. I actually care about this whole space a lot. But, you know, it's good to be given opportunities. And, you know, that's what I've been telling everybody, pounding the drum, is this is the opportunity that you've all been waiting for your whole lives. And it's still in play.
Um, and the opportunity is not going away, and it's not going away just because we might finish the cycle at the end of this year. It's not going away because regulators, it's not going away from quantum computers, it's not going away because of green energy. It's not going away. It's getting bigger. There's another 100x from this whole space to come over the next 10 to 20 years, 100x. And we're going to be here to cover it. We are, indeed. Ralph, thanks for joining us. Good. Have a good weekend, everybody. Enjoy yourselves and uh, think Bitcoin. Thanks for watching, everyone. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.